Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. What's going on, everybody, and welcome back. I am going to be short and sweet today. I have gotten some wonderful feedback from some amazing people that I love and care dearly about, and they told me I need to be more short and sweet with my intros, I need to tighten up my newsletters, and I'm listening loud and clear. It is easily my biggest weakness of just trying to explain to everybody how everything works because I just love learning and I love explaining what I've learned, but that is not the point of the intro, (laughs) so bear with me. I'm going to try my darndest to be short and concise and get straight to it. Today, I had the honor of interviewing not only someone that has transformed the face of the food and beverage service industry, but he has also redefined what company culture means. And that is Tom Walter, who is the founder of Tasty Catering and author of It's My Company Too. And he has tapped into a method that creates not just highly engaged employees, which I think a lot of people want these days, but employees that commit their entire soul and being by getting entangled in the company culture because they're individual purpose is aligned with the company's culture and the company's purpose and the overarching goal. And the results are a company everyone wants to work at that also outperforms the competition. I don't know about you, but that's exactly what I want. And a little bit about Tom is he's earned national recognition as a speaker on entrepreneurship, leadership, and above all, his crucial role of business culture. Along with being the author and the founder of Tasty Catering, Tom has spearheaded over 32 ventures, serves on the advisory board of five Chicago area companies and two universities. In addition, he's an active member of the Academy of Management and the Small Giants community. And Tom is a member of the Chicago Entrepreneurship Hall of Fame. He's the real deal and he's unbelievably humble and a wonderful human being. And in today's conversation, Tom's going to share with us his experience and the insights that he's gathered over the decades and how to forge a company that everyone is drawn to, a place that values each individual, fosters their personal growth and stands resilient in the face of uncertainty and headwinds. The last thing I would say is if you're interested in a financial and operational dashboard for your company that is taking what you're doing today and tying it to your target valuation at the point in time so you can see your cash flow, project out the valuation, and most importantly, the value drivers and the levers you can pull in order to achieve that valuation, Go check out the show notes where you can book a discovery call today and receive a complimentary financial assessment with my partners and team at Arcona. So I appreciate everybody for tuning in and I really, really hope you enjoy this conversation with Tom Walter. This episode is brought to you by Arcona's Fractional CFO Services. Arcona's Fractional CFOs integrate into your management team and assume the responsibility of the CFO. They become your strategic financial partner to help you run the business, create your value growth plan, and build the financial roadmap to the valuation you want to achieve. Tom, good afternoon. How are you? Good. Good to be with you, Ryan. I am so excited. I uh, So many thoughts because I, I met you when I was getting ready to do my presentation at Small Giants. I was nervous because, I mean, Bo's book, Finish Big, was the reason I was there. So it's kind of a surreal experience. And our conversation that we had, Tom, was so helpful for me because you told your story about growing up and starting Tasty Catering. And it just gave me 
this, it was kind of this reassurance that we're all just people and we're all doing the right things, trying to do the right things. And I absolutely loved your story. It resonated with me a ton. You sent me your book and I just loved it. So Thank here you. we are. And I appreciate you coming on the show. Maybe you can kind of give everybody kind of the cliff note of what you're up to, what you've done, and then we can go back and unpack the book and your story. Well, I'm, uh, I've been in business for over 53 years as an owner. I've started a lot of companies, uh, but now I'm in a place where I have no more operational requirements or responsibilities. And I'm able to spend my time advising the people that run our businesses and speaking. And I really enjoy speaking, especially at universities. There's over 40 universities that are using our book currently, and I speak at those universities for no fee if they're using the book in a classroom or in a department. And I find meeting young people and their thirst for knowledge and, more importantly, wisdom. What is it that you learned at your age that we're not being taught in the school? And uh, that's very rewarding. And I've met a lot of young people who have become friends over the last 12 years. That's so awesome, Tom. And, you know, you, you've got this passion for education that I think you and I shared right right away. It was very obvious that we had this, uh, you know, passion for understanding how things work and helping everybody get on the same page. Right. So uh, what, what would maybe bring us back, you know, what was the origin story of Tasty Catering and why did you start the business and kind of give us a little bit of context so that way we can get into then why you wrote the book and what's in it? I started the business because I was a failure in life. I've been fired from every job I had until I started my own business because I had a passionate hatred for bosses, people that <laughs> use their position of controlling my paycheck to dominate me and uh, mentally abuse me. And, uh, and then lo and behold, 30 years later, I was doing the same thing. I had become a boss. And uh, that's what led to the social revolution in our business. Um, that led to the writing of the book. But in the beginning, it was food because I came from a family of 11 children and, and two parents. There were 13 of us in a tiny three-bedroom home with one bathroom. And I, I wanted to get out. I wanted to make sure there was food every night. And uh, there was there were many nights where we just eat boiled potatoes for dinner. That's all we could afford. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's why we got into the food industry. And I had two brothers that are partners. Now there's only one brother left. One brother left the company and took some of the companies all for his own. We split up a couple of years ago. That's what led to writing the book. 13 so people in one three-bedroom. I don't know. <laughs> With one <Wow>. bathroom. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I need to send that little clip to anybody that complains about their current situation mm -hmm. and sharing anything in their house. Yeah. So. You, and you started with hot dog stands, right? And before right. you got into catering? Uh, and go ahead. Yeah, we opened up a hot dog stand in, in the suburb of Chicago. I had been working in one, one of the most famous ones in the city of Chicago, and I uh, thought we could duplicate their 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 system. And if you can't make it in hot dogs in Chicago in the 70s, you're not going to make it anywhere. <laughs> you know, hot dog stands and Italian beef stands were the, the place you eat in Chicago. So, and then you guys ended up scaling into Tasty Catering. And I want to kind of get to this and you can maybe kind of give us a setup of what Tasty Catering is doing now and maybe like how you shifted gears. Because I think I want to get to this conversation that you had, which led to the name of the book and kind of your shift in mindset, which I thought was very fascinating when I was reading the book. Like, I mean, you, so that maybe kind of work us up to yeah. that conversation. Well, we found out that... Uh Dick Portillo had more assets than we did, and he was expanding his hot dog empire in Chicago. 
And um, we were getting very frustrated uh, about not being able to predict the weather or the crowds. So we'd have a lot of food cost wastage because at the end of the day, you're throwing out fresh vegetables that were mm. prepared. And we had started a catering business providing uh, outdoor events, big picnics for our company, our, our clients that came into Tasty Dog. And uh, we started doing box lunches and we decided to just start a separate field, a separate revenue stream of Tasty Catering. And uh, Tasty Catering became very big. There was no dominant caterer in the northwest suburbs. We're located by O'Hare Airport on the far northwest mm -hmm. side of the city. And uh, so we eventually sold Tasty Dog. We sold all the hot dog stands and we had other restaurants and things. And we focused just on Tasty Catering. And uh, so it ties into the book is that when we sold the, the other businesses in 2005, we bought a 25,000 square foot building in Elk Grove Village, which is the largest industrial park in the country, and uh, six square miles of industry. And we thought there'd be a lot of corporate clients that would want our services. And we'd already had a presence because we had two restaurants in Elk Grove, one in the industrial park and one in the residential area. So we moved into this building in November of 2005. And the day before Thanksgiving, my brother Larry and I had got into a huge argument that only brothers could have. But uh, it was in front of a lot of female employees and other employees. And we were using the F word and, and throwing things at each other. And it was very contentious. But it was just the way we grew up, you know, it was brotherly love in a different <laughs> Living room, setting. office conference, conference room, same thing, right? And same people. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so that, that was the day before Thanksgiving. And uh, we were... We declined. We defined our territory. He, I couldn't go in his kitchen. He couldn't come in my office. And uh, I think that harks back to having a tiny house. We wanted to have our territory and our space. <laughs> yeah, right. And we're gonna mark it off like dogs. <laughs> but uh, I came in on that Monday after Thanksgiving. I think it was the twenty eighth of November of two thousand five, and I sat at my desk and amped up with coffee because I was going to get in a battle with him. And I, I'm the oldest brother. This was all my money that started this. And I brought him in as a junior partner. And now he was an equal partner. And, you know, I had that respect thing. I demand respect. I didn't yeah. earn respect, but I was demanding it. So then two young people came up to my desk about nine o'clock, a 23-year-old lady named Jamie and a 24-year-old young man named Tim. And they said, the famous words that changed my life forever. They said, if you don't change, we're leaving. And I said, change what? And they said, uh, we don't like your style of leadership or management. We don't want to work for a boss. We want to work for a leader. And I said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And they described what they wanted to do. They wanted to create core values, et cetera. And I said, I don't know how to lead that change, but if you lead it, I'll support you. Because I had... I'm an alcoholic and a drug abuser, and I had gotten clean and straight many years before, but I had reached bottom. I knew what bottom was like, and I was at the bottom of being a business owner. I was 50-some years old and tired and frustrated, and everything I was doing wasn't working right. I was completely disconnected from employees. I knew it. and uh, But you can't just quit your job because I had millions of dollars in debt that I was responsible for. And so I needed to change, but I didn't know how. So anyway, Jamie and Tim were like the guardian angels, and uh, we supported them, and we funded their needs, and they outlined a course of action. They took it, and it turned out to be extremely successful. So thank you so much for sharing that context, Tom. It is uh, – there's so many interesting and, like, just unbelievable things that are part of that story. Is like, how did you know – 
that you're at rock bottom? I mean, was it because you experienced it with your personal life with the substance abuse? Because the reason I'm asking, Tom, people can get hit between the eyes with that kind of truth bomb and they don't even get knocked down. They just move forward and call people like that. That's their problem. They're denying, you know, they're denying the reality. So how, what allowed, cause like that was when I read that first part of the book, it made sense for the rest of the book, how that all happened to me from the leadership perspective. But like you were receptive and listened. And so, I mean, how many business owners and friends or entrepreneurs do you know that could have just avoided that conversation and kept plowing forward? Probably a lot. So thank God I am a substance abuser because I had practice <laughs> at hitting bottom. You know, I know I know what that mentally bankrupt feeling was like, and that emotionally destitute feeling was like. And no matter where I looked, I saw problems and I saw aggravations. And and there there is another factor that's very important uh, for an outsider, but it wasn't too important for me. Is that Tim is my son. And uh, Jamie has been a close friend since she was 10 years old. She ran in the same group of friends as my son and daughter. And so I've known Jamie since she was 10 or 11 years old. And my hope was that these two would lead us to victory. Because certainly I'm 55 and they're 23 and they know what's going on in the world and I don't. I'm past my prime in, in business. I'm to the point where I don't know, have knowledge anymore. I only have wisdom you know, emotional intelligence from being around. So I, I welcomed them. So the factor was the people that were saying it were people I trusted and I believed mm -hmm. in, but I mm -hmm. was so broke, so tired of fighting with my brothers. And I could not think that I would spend another 20 years doing this, that it was time for me to get out. But then I was personally signed on for millions of dollars in debt that was controlled by that company. Mm -hmm. I couldn't just quit. So well, I was vulnerable. But you you captured it and 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 you seized that and you I mean you created a company and a book and a methodology that is wonderful that came out of that and I I want to talk about like your definition so your book's called it's my company too curious on maybe we can kind of start like why'd you write the book and somehow in this kind of set in the frame of kind of unpacking the book time but like why the book and the name. And then the t entanglement. So I know there's kind of just kind of the overarching, like how did you come up with this philosophy? You kind of want to you know, tee, it, tee it up. Well, I had grown up reading biographies of great business leaders and, I real and biographies of great military leaders, admirals, generals, because I wanted to know what it's like to be a leader. Even though I was the second oldest of 11 children and my older sister fled to a Catholic convent when she was 18 years old to get out of the house and became a PhD and did her own thing. I was the leader of younger, nine younger brothers and sisters. So I understood responsibility, understood being in charge of people, the responsible and not the privileged side. But I wanted to learn about how to be a leader in business. But most of the books that I read were about a personality, Jack Welch's personality, uh, mm -hmm. Bill George's personality, and, and how they're such a dynamic leader. And well, I it's not my personality. I wanted to know what the common root was for great leadership. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was very easy to find out reading Harvard Business Review and other publications that use uh, open documents, documents that are published about companies' value. But it's hard to find a story about a small business such as mm -hmm. ours. And 99.6% of all businesses in the United States are considered small businesses. I think that's the number. But how do you find out what really motivates a small business? How does it run? And uh, so 
after this change, we started to get recognition because we started winning best places to work. We entered those. Jamie wanted to benchmark what we were doing. And so she entered best places to work nationally and in the states and in the city, the regional area. And we won them. And a, and a youth, United States Air Force colonel retired and came to me and said he was working on his Ph.D. or his Doctor of Management, and he wanted to do his dissertation on Tasty Catering, this change. Oh, cool. And it was titled, his title was Ethnographic Study of Culture in a Small Workplace. And he told me he was going to do deep dives. He was going to take over a 1,000 pictures, and he was going to interview every employee at length and watch methodologies. And he said, you have to sign a copyright release so I could document that I could publish this. And I said, sure. Talked to my brothers. They supported it. And I said, as I signed it, I said, I'm signing this, but I want your word that I get the copyright for the book we're going to write. And he said, what book? I said, I want to do this with a lot of companies, small companies that won awards. I want to find out from an academic evidence-based research, checking empirical data, what is the accurate reason why small companies are, are successful, why some mm -hmm. are and some aren't. Mm -hmm. Besides, far beyond the emotional point of the leader's personality and his magnetism and her magnetism. Mm -hmm. And uh, since that day, Ryan, we've had six doctoral dissertations done on Tasty Catering. The last one was Me to We. It discussed our distributive leadership method where everybody in our company is a leader of something. And they mm -hmm. all understand the pains of being a leader. But these dissertations were like incredible consulting analysis of our company. And uh, we've also been featured in many um, academic journal articles that are used nationally or worldwide, globally, to do business studies, case studies. And Tasty Catering has, has been studied by a lot. But I've been going to these best places to work, and I thought, why are they so successful? And one of them was Mike's Express Car Wash of Indianapolis, Indiana. And I thought, we got beat by them for, I think it was Inc. Magazine or Wall Street Journal, best place to work. And, they were, and I said, a car wash? And they were probably <laughs> Bring thinking, it on. They were probably, <laughs> yeah, they were probably thinking, a caterer? <laughs> so the next, the next day, I drove down to Indianapolis to get my car washed, Mike's Express car wash. <laughs> I, yeah, I love it. Nothing like get, getting an entrepreneur a, a, a competitive edge, right? Yeah. A, a, a competition. <laughs> I wanted to find out what their secret sauce was. I've, I'll never forget this young man. I pulled in and they all wore white long sleeve Oxford shirts with the button down and they had black Levi's on. And these were all young people and they looked, you know, how you can look at some people and think they're upper yeah. echelon for their age group. Or, these were all upper echelon young people. And I said to him, why is your company so recognized for your culture? What makes you so special? This is before I even ordered my car wash. Like, uh, would you like an air freshener, sir? I know you're getting, <laughs> you're getting grilled on like, company culture. <laughs> yeah, I would have liked to do a follow-up exit survey with him about what kind of nut was just there. But he pulled out a card out of his pocket. And he said, this is why. And he gave it to me. It was the core values of the company. He hmm. said, this is what makes us different and unique. And he said, this is why I want to work here. I thought, Whoa. Let's find out about this culture business. Mm -hmm. So I went back, and uh, that's when I, I saw all these companies winning best places to work. Midway USA, even a hospital, Good Samaritan Hospital. I'm thinking, why are they always winning? 
So I recruited Dr. Ken Thompson, who was very well recognized in the academic community. He had been a professor at Notre Dame University. He was the chairman of the business school or dean of the business school or whatever the title is at DePaul University. And uh, my daughter had had him in class and said he was a phenomenal professor. And and then Ray Benedetto, the guy who had the, the colonel who had done his doc, his dissertation on Tasty, and I said, let's go out and explore these companies and do evidence-based research. And I want it to be academic proof. I want the academic community to say this is the truth because then it gives credibility. Not some charisma from some random person that's got a big personality kind of thing. And not an author writing just to write a a feel-good story. I wanted Ken to be the lead author because he had done this kind of work before. And Ken's a no-nonsense. He's a Malcolm Baldridge Senior Examiner, which is the highest award you can win in the country if you're a business. And I wanted his approach to this so academia would look at this and say, yes, let's teach our students this. This is important. Mm-hmm. And so I could I walk into a company just off the street and I say, hi, I'm Tom Walter from Tasty Cater, and I'd like to study your company. Could you show me your P&Ls? <laughs> he would laugh me right out of the building. <laughs> but when Dr. Ken Thompson said, this is our staff and we would like to look at you. And right. part of it is we need to look at your financial documentation. Oh, certainly, Dr. Thompson. <laughs> yeah. And then I would go sit and yeah. look at it. But um, we did case studies on several companies. I forget how many, maybe 22 or something. And we whittled it down to eight case studies. Uh, we thought each one re- represented a segment of commerce or industry or mm. medical field. And uh they were amazing case studies, and we found out that the common DNA, and we had all bet in advance what we thought it would be. I thought it was leadership. Ken Thompson thought it was systems and processes. Uh, Ray Benedetto thought it was culture, if I remember correctly, and Lord forbid if I made a mistake on one of those, I apologize. But we found out it was employee engagement. Every one of them had exceptionally high employee engagement for their industry and for national averages. And uh, they were off the charts with people that were committed to this company, mm-hmm. committed beyond anything that I, I thought was reasonable. Along the way in writing the book, we also asked Molly Meyer to be an author with us. Molly was working with us and uh, through high school, and she'd gone to University of Dayton and gotten a degree in marketing. And I was driving downtown to speak at DePaul one day, and Molly asked her to come with me because Ken Thompson wanted to give Molly a teacher's assistant position, so a free MBA. And uh, I said, you know, Ken's going to ask you if you want to be a TA. And she said, okay. She's looking out the window on the Kennedy Expressway, and I said, Molly, this is like $50,000 worth of feel-good stuff. You know, you should be excited. <laughs> she said, I'm not. She said, I don't want an MBA. I don't want to put my mind in a, my box. I am a, I'm a creative content writer. I, I'm not like that. And uh, I said, well, what do you want to do in life? And she said, I want to be an author. I want to write a book. Oh, cool. And we were starting this book and I said, okay. So we asked her to come along with us and uh, she went to Sweden to play softball because she's an all-American softball player. And we funded her. We we're paying her to write the content because we wanted, we had three 60-year-old white guys. I mean, how cut dried was that and we wanted to have it appeal to others so we brought in this 23 year old young lady and she came out of most of the interviews and and she was part of it but she did a lot of the writing so it would be in a tone that wouldn't be stilted academic then the day that we got the book we showed her the cover 
And I says, Molly, look at the cover. Because her company designed is it. This still this, is it still this one? Yes. And That's it, awesome. She didn't know on the binding, if you look on the side, that it said Thompson, Benedetto, Walter, Meyer. She didn't know yeah. she was. And she's a published author now. <laughs> she yeah, was. The awesome. tears in her eyes were just worthwhile. You know, she was just so excited. Yeah. But th- we were having trouble coming up with the name as we we're writing the book. And an incident happened at Tasty Catering. Our employees had, uh, they, they came up with this culture at Tasty Catering, and they bought the book Good to Great by Jim Collins and distributed it mm-hmm. to everybody in the organization because it comes in Spanish and English. And I would say 70% of our workforce are Spanish immigrants or children of Spanish, Mexican immigrants primarily. Um, and we wanted them to be able to read it in their native tongue so they could be part of it. Um, an interesting point about Tasty today is that there's over 100 full-time employees and there's only three white males in the whole company. It's run yeah. by women and minorities. They're the dominant voice in the company. But it really doesn't matter because we don't delineate what you are. We delineate who you are. You know, do you follow mm-hmm. the culture? So <laughs> Jamie distributed the book and Tim in December of 2005 and then – in March of 2006, they called together a meeting, and they had selected seven teams, and I asked to be part of the selecting of the leaders from those teams because I wanted someone with emotional intelligence, not just somebody popular, someone that had a maturity bent on them. Even if they were young in their 20s, you know, there's a maturity of approach to this. And so the seven leaders were going to meet on a Monday in our conference room, and I asked Jamie, who was organizing this, I said, Jamie, can... Uh, my brothers and I are going to be in this meeting, right? And she said, no, there's no place at the table for you. This is about the employees. <laughs> and I said, well, we'd like to watch this because this is an integral part of our company. This is revolutionary. And she said, well, you can sit in the corner, but there's no place at the table for you. If you're at the table, you're going to intimidate people. In fact, if I see that you, they're being intimidated because I've been in conversations with them, I'm going to ask you to leave the room. And I thought that was a fair question because I, mm-hmm. my brother Larry and I especially were such nasty people. I mean, we had, you know, overstayed our welcome and being nice to people. So they came up with the core values. And as they came up with the core values, the first one was there will always be moral, ethical, and legal. And Tim had written on the whiteboard about 30 different ideas that came from the employees, what they thought. He asked for five ideas from each team, what they wanted for core values. And there were only 30. And he condemned the first one. Some had integrity. Some had uh, honesty. Some had trust. But they combined the first one to be, will always be more ethical than legal. Hmm. And when they made the I second one, treat all with respect, I turned to my brothers and say, that's what dad taught us. If we're always moral and ethical, you don't have to worry about being legal. And treat mm-hmm. people with respect, and you'll have a great life. I said, throw out an employee handbook. They finished up the seven core values, and then they started working on core purpose and the BHAG, Big Hairy Audacious Mm -hmm. Goal. In fact, the Big Hairy Audacious Goal was to be the most respected and recognized uh, company in our business, in our industry. Cool. Yeah. And I said, Erin joined us, and Erin is my daughter. She had been playing professional soccer, so she wasn't around for the beginning of this. But she had joined us in March just before she left for spring training. To uh, she had joined us to um, help formulate this process, and I I said afterwards, why did you come up with your BHAG to be the most recognized, respected brand in our industry, and not put catering? 
And she said something very prophetic. She said, if we put catering in there, we'll only be caterers. But this means any company we start, it's going to be the most recognized and respected brand in the industry. And if you look at the brands that we have that they started, each one of them is the most recognized and respected brand in the industry. It may not be the biggest, but it's recognized and respected. So we were struggling for a name. After Now we'll fast forward another year, two years, three years, and we started writing the book. Tasty Catering had become very involved in this culture. Uh, one of the things that was I Was even recognizable as a company at that point compared to when you and your brother had that little uh, little fight and you had the conversation? I mean, it must have been like completely of a different company, at the, look, looking like a completely different company at that point. It did. It took a while, Brian, to change, but unbeknownst to us, and this is something your your followers should know, is that we followed Cotter's Eight Steps of Change. And I don't, still don't know mm. who John Cotter is. I've never met him. But academics said his steps of change work 99.5. That's my my statement, but it works all the time. But we had followed Cotter's steps of change, so everybody in the organization had bought into this change. And we listed the values everywhere, and we put numbers in front of them, numbers one through seven. And so we'd have a meeting. Before every meeting of five people or more, the values are read. The culture is read by everybody in the room. So if you really want to be a smart guy, it, when the clock hits two o'clock, you start by number one. We'll always be moral, ethical, and legal. And the person next to you says number two, and it goes around until everybody says the whole thing. But over time, it became it was not only conscious, but it became subconscious. It became subliminal. And it became mm-hmm. an espoused value, who we are. It became, and if you read Edgar Schein. An identity, right? It's, it's an, an identity, an, yeah, individual yeah. and organizational. And Edgar Schein, the famous author of Organizational Culture and Behavior, which is the textbook, according to academic experts, this is the best book ever about organizational culture. He said that by doing this, it becomes an espoused value. Everybody has it. It becomes the subliminal existence. So the behaviors in Tasty Cater, and if you watch them, you'll see everybody treating each other with respect. If you just sit back and watch this, you'll see them look mm-hmm. at each other, mm-hmm. smile, and say hello. So it became a way of life for Tasty. Pardon the interruption. I want to, first of all, say thank you so much for being a supporter of the podcast and our show. I really, truly mean it. It means the world to us. And I have to do these interruptions because we do not take any sponsorships. Therefore, the company cash flow from Arcona has to generate enough cash flow to sustain the podcast and continue doing what we're doing. And we just have three offerings that Arcona has. We've got our educational offering, which is the Intentional Growth Academy or the in-person boot camp. If you want to learn how all this stuff works and do it yourself, yeah, the second offering is our financial dashboard offering with coaching calls. Think about that with the do it with you where you want the data and the visibility and the foresight and some guidance, but you have the ability to make all the decisions yourself and you're just needing some support. And then the third offering is our fractional CFO services offering that is still powered by that dashboard. But think about that, the do it for you. So do it with you, do it for you, or the do it yourself. And if you want to check out those resources, they're in the show notes below. And if you're wanting to know more, feel free to just book a call with me and my team. And that scheduling link is also below. I thank you so much for tuning in. And I know you're going to love the rest of the interview with Tom Walter. I think about how many companies I've consulted with over the last 10 years. And then I think about me even stepping foot in my first time in our family business. And you can have as many posters across your company as you want about core values. But if you hide all that stuff and just watch the people, that's like you just, I like how you worded that because I can walk in and you can 
you know, because there's always this, how do you articulate culture, which I know is why, why we're talking right now, but it's like, it's so many people have the lip service and they think that they hung the poster. So they're going to get the results versus like you said, when it's internal and intrinsic, it, I mean, that's the hard work, right? It's not coming up with them and slapping the poster up. It's the internalizing and actually changing people's behaviors and making it part of the business. Absolutely correct, Ryan. And for for your listeners and followers, you can uh, – there's a book by uh, Edgar Schein called Organizational Behavior and Culture. And I'd be happy to give them – the, the table that's in it, but on chapter 10 is the most important chapter of all on how to incept organizational culture into your organization. Mm. And he has a, on his chapter 10 on a second page, he's got a table with six ways to embed culture in an organization and six ways to maintain it. And he spent 30 years doing evidence-based research to find out, is this the best way? And he didn't go in there with a predetermined, these are my 12 objectives, I got to prove it. He went in with a blank slate and said, what are the best ways that that right there i think is what i love because it's it's not trying to force what you want it to be it's understanding what's there right that this is natural human nature if you do these things humans will react to it and they will Uh create this culture and every company has a culture every organization has a culture some are good some are bad some are indifferent but if you're a business leader and want to knowingly create a positive culture and Organizational development say there's four strong reasons for a positive organizational culture. One, it's a differentiator. Nobody else has tasty caterings. Everybody else in the city of Chicago, tasty catering is one of the four largest caterers in Chicago. We're, we've moved up from back when we had this cultural revolution, we were a bottom middling company. But we've emerged and become a dominant player in the, in the marketplace. Every other caterer has chicken champagne or barbecue brisket of beef, but nobody has our people. And right. if you look at right. our, our reviews, Yelp, Wedding Wire, The Knot, I think it's The Knot is a major wedding review. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a 4.9 out of 5 with 68 votes or 68 reviews, 4.9. And all of them are like 4.85 to higher to 5. And uh, they all start by the same kind of pattern. Our wedding day tasty catering was awesome. Carolyn was a great planner to work with, so wonderful and a proficient. And the day of, the wedding captain, Terry, was awesome. What great staff. And their food was great. Well, <laughs> food's a commodity. <laughs> and they still had brisket and they still had champagne. <laughs> and the food was great. But if you yeah. look at our competitors, not one of them had f- people mentioned. Not one. They all talked about the Isn't that They cool. talk about the food or the setting or something. But tasties start with the people. And to me, that's a differentiator. So there's four different four differentiators. One is nobody else has it, so it separates your company. It's a complete differentiator. Number two, it attracts people, like uh, our whole special event team. Three precious ladies, wonderful ladies, are all students that were in classrooms when I spoke, and they said, I want to work in a culture like that where I would be treated with respect. So <laughs> part of my college speaking is I recruit. People say, I want to work in that kind of a company. Can I get a job? Sure, come on. <laughs> Uh, and the third one is it increases competitive advantage financially. I mean, our financials are to die for. Mm. Our, our profitability compared to industry norm is stunning. It's almost double what the industry norm mm-hmm. would be because people are so engaged. Plus, we play the great game of business, which is open mm-hmm. book financial transparency. Mm-hmm. And the fourth one is it creates this feeling in you that allows for more discretionary thinking. So so here's the definition of of culture. Uh, 
or employee engagement. Let's do the employee engagement one. The employee engagement is the emotional commitment an employee has to its organization's values, vision, and mission, which results in higher discretionary thinking. So if you don't have clearly stated a positive value, vision, and mission, how do your employees ever give you their discretionary thoughts? And according to the Institute of Mental Health and Wellness, the average company, average person has 60,000 thoughts a day. 60,000. <laughs> and the most you, oh, wow. the most an employee can give a specific operation is typically 10%. So I was playing with my calculator the day that I read that. And I said, well, if the average employer gets 4% of their employees' thoughts all day long, okay, that's 2,400 thoughts or whatever. What if I could get eight to 10? What if our company could average 8%? So I did the mental, I did the calculation and it's 250,000 thoughts coming from the same employees more. <laughs> I love it so much, Tom. <laughs> I love it so much. There was a book. Uh, is it? Uh, I, th- I think it's Daniel Pink uh, drive when they were talking about the 20% of letting people, the discretionary thinking like you're thinking about. And I read that book when I was uh, helping turn around our culture, like 10, 15 years ago. And they were talking about like, and, Mine was absolutely not as uh, uh, methodical as you, but like someone was like the book had said something like, if your employees resent working for you, they're going to do everything to not think about their job and what they're trying to do. Just kind of like you're saying. And when they're in a shower or we're going for a run, they're not going to have a really good idea because they're not thinking about you. And like, so like, that's all I took. But like, I love the fact that you actually put some numbers behind it. That's super fascinating. Yes. And the biggest enemy for discretionary thoughts from an employee and employee engagement is disruptors. So I spent my time thinking about how do I remove disruptors in this workplace? Erin told me back in 2006 or seven, she said, you've been doing business wrong your whole life, dad. (laughs) I said, how so? And uh, she drew up on a chart. She drew A with an arrow leading to B with an arrow leading to C. She says, you don't get this. This is organizational behavior. And Erin's brilliant, you know, straight A student all the way through graduate school. She started a very successful business with Tim and Jamie, a, a very successful marketing business that's become the dominant marketing agency in the catering space. But, but she said, all your life, you've been focused on outcomes, consequences. It's antecedents lead to behaviors, lead to consequences. That's organizational behavior. So I always, I grew up hearing you talk about labor percentages and cost of foods, goods sold and profit percentages. I never heard you talk about the people. I never talked, heard you talk about how they behave. I never talk about the rules that you set up, just the outcome. And she said, if we gave you the core values, we gave you the culture, that's your antecedents. You need to focus on enforcing the behaviors. From that day on, Ryan, I never thought about the outcomes. I stopped. I said, all right, I'm going to prove her wrong. <laughs> I knew I wouldn't because <laughs> she's brilliant. But, but I, 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 I love it so much, Tom. Just a couple of uh, comments for context for you about how I think. It's like conscious capitalism. When I read that book like five years ago, and like that's why you've you've probably heard in some of my speaking engagements. I like the, the my my gravitation towards ESOPs. Why I love Jack Stack. I've had him on the show with Open Book Management, where it's like the alignment of incentives where everybody's rewarded for the value that they're creating and treated with respect. It's like, you have to have, like you get the people, but then you're layering it on top of the game of the business. You can't have them decoupled otherwise, like, but it gets all swirled together and people just step on each other. And it's just, and it's the people. And like Jack's always says, if the people are pointed in the right direction, 
the numbers will come, but then it's just, it's so people do it. So, you know, chaotically that it's not effective. I think, I don't know if that's what maybe some of the things that you've seen or. I agree with you. I met Jack Stack at a small giant outing in Germany in 2010 or 11, and I've been I've been a Jack Stack loyalist ever since. And uh, we agree on a lot of points, but on a few points we disagree. But those are just gentlemanly disagreements. Having you know, smoking the cigar and having a beer or brandy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he, what a brilliant mind, especially with Bo Burlingham, how they collaborated to give us the great game of business and. Let me go off, if I could digress on Jack Stack yeah, and absolutely. Great Game for a moment. Uh, we we played the great game of business. We do it. And uh, I sent my son, when I got back from Germany, I sent him to Springfield, Missouri, to go through the great game of business training. And he's got an accounting degree, and he's a phenomenal entrepreneur. He now is doing so much better than me. He's an incredible entrepreneur. But uh, he said, I don't need this. I understand finances. I says, no, we got to teach everybody in the company. We have to teach financial literacy to dishwashers. We, everybody's mm-hmm. got to know it. So he went out there and spent three days in their program. And his wife told me, driving home from Springfield, Missouri, he talked to her for four hours while he was driving about how excited he was about this great game of business. And uh, so if you come to Tasty Catering, we have a five-foot-by-ten-foot board that's our P&L and every Wednesday it gets upgraded and everybody knows exactly where our financial where our finances are. Um, one of our young, so everybody's assigned to a line item and one of our guys, Brian Keyworth, was in charge of automobile fuel and he was the logistics guy that helped set up the schedules for the daily trucks. And uh, one day he made the announcement because we play the game on Wednesday. We shut down every day at 1230 and have lunch. The chefs make us a great buffet. And we sit down as a family, lock the doors, turn the phones off, and have lunch with each other for a half hour, 45 minutes. Oh, that's so cool. And uh, on Wednesdays at 1247, we play the game. We ring a bell and we start going over the updated P&L for that week. <laughs> I love it. And uh, Brian was in charge of auto fuel. So one day during a meeting, Brian said, you know, I drive by five or seven filling stations from my home to Tasty every day. And I've been tracking. And I found out that gas is cheapest on Tuesday afternoons and most expensive on Fridays. <laughs> and we all fill up. We fill up all of our vans and our trucks, and we have about 30 of them in the fleet. We fill them up on Fridays. We're losing money. So the administration team, they worked very closely on tracking what Brian's results were, you know, measure your success. And they came up with a $35,000 figure. And we celebrated a year after Brian told us to do this. Brian had saved us about $35,000 with this idea. So flash forward a few years, I, Brian's in the ops room and I have a guest like you and I Brian comes walking by, I put my arm around him and says, hey, Ryan, I want you to meet Brian. Brian uh, saved us $140,000 in gasoline. And Brian says, I don't want to, Tom, that's not accurate because, you know, we have to be honest at all times. So you call people out if they're dishonest. And he says, Tom, I, I just want to tell you that it's really 35000 I says, Brian, that's one year. It's been four years. You saved us 140000 He goes, Oh, I never looked at it that way. <laughs> so here's a guy with his discretionary thoughts thinking about how to make the company more money, and they all share in the bonuses. So I'm a strong um, believer. I, it's, it's, such a, it's such a great – so a couple of nuanced questions about this is just – is um, when I one of my favorite parts when I was talking to Jack and about the great game is he – like he, he said some people put people's picture next to the GL 
code. And he's like, everybody's, he was, he, I think one of the quotes was, the best KPI dashboard is your income statements. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, of course Jack would say that. But my question for you, because I love it, because it's providing people, if as long as the income statement's tied to a goal that makes sense, that's a, 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 like achievable, then they have a parameter parameters for that role and what they can do, like you were talking about with the gas. My question is, Tom, is, and I, I, we can go down this uh, rabbit hole a little bit if you want, but it, some of the, you know, with so many people that play the great game are ESOPs. So opening up the the full income statement or the full set of financials becomes kind of a, a, a common place. Do you think that you need to be an ESOP or did you share just like the, the revenue and the cost of goods and you like had some of the overhead and some of the other stuff? How, how did you approach this kind of conundrum that people kind of get their head into a, a into a spaghetti pie about? Well, I don't think most employees want an ESOP. I think what most employees want is the privilege of being an owner, and that means money. I don't think most employees want to be concerned about the responsibilities, which is legal uh, compliance and, and uh, HR compliance. And they give me the money, show me the money. And we've only had one employee in uh, 30 some years, 35 years that wanted ownership. And since we've been playing the great game of business, they're very happy because they have huge 401k plans, plus they get bonuses. When we hit 5% cumulative profit before taxes at the end of a quarter, everybody gets a paycheck. And if it's 6%, it's two paychecks. We went into December of last year at 11% bonus. They were thinking the slowdown in the first quarter, we're going to have six, seven weeks pay free. So do they think about ownership? No, let, let, that's why Tom has no hair, and that's why Larry's fat, you know, because they, <laughs> they worry about this stuff all the time. So I don't think that's really a concern. But if someone wanted ownership, I would certainly talk to them about it and see what extents do you want. The I think it's important also to have financial literacy, and I learned this from Jack. And We have a thing called TC University where you can spend – up to eight hours on company time learning about subjects. So one of the subjects we have is financial literacy. But the first course everybody has to take is culture, the history of our culture, the tribal stories. The second one is leadership. Those are mandatory. Then after that, but financial literacy we like because these a lot of our folks have never graduated from high school. You know, they were entry level. Doesn't mean they're not intelligent. They're brilliant. Some of them are uncannily intelligent, but never had formal education. So they don't understand PL. So mm -hmm. I'm married to a wonderful lady who's also a financial planner. You and I have spoken about this. And so she's she was also a high school teacher in the beginning. So she runs classes teaching these folks in Spanish and English about what is a financial, what does finances mean? Mm -hmm. And then if you want to borrow money, we lend money to employees on need and 1% interest, which is impudiated by the government. But if you ask for money twice in one year, you have to take Bobby's financial planning course. You have to do budgets with her. And Super cool. she does family budgets. So, and she's come back to us and said, we need to give Francisco $10,000 more because he's got a lot of credit card debt. And if he wants to buy a house, well, so anyway, she masterminds all that. And so our employees are learning how to run a company at a high level, even though they're washing dishes for a living. So Tom, I, I, that is amazing. I'm, that is so cool. I don't even know words for it. Um, it Cause like here, I think you and I have, from our conversations I've gathered, have a very similar outlook. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's like, I, cause I can't, 
I can't have conversations because you and I were talking before my presentation. I got a D in accounting as a copier sales rep, right? And then I'm sitting up there talking, talking about weighted average cost of capital and normalized <laughs> EBITDA. It's like, what, what a joke is this? The world's laughing at me. But my point is, Tom, is like, you know, if you don't, if you have just cultured people with no clear financial goals or metrics or path, it doesn't work. You need, if you're just a private equity firm, like I always say, the private equity firms they they look at this. We're going to roll up this industry, this beautiful forty five degree angle chart of wealth creation, and it's like, well, you have to have people that execute that, and so it's both. And like you can't have one without the other, from what I've gathered. And then when one and the other, the finances actually drop out of the the visible. Uh, they drop to the back seat. If it's all done the right way, it's kind of how I've gathered. So it's not just about the numbers, like you've said. I don't know if you share that because we've talked all about culture, but then you drove drove right into finance as like the enabler to help people think about just the people. Is that how do you how do you view this topic? Well, I think I think our goal is solve finances, no matter who we are and, and where we are. It's all about embettering yourself financially. But to accomplish that, you need to have a safe, secure feeling about your employment. I would think. So mm -hmm. the culture allows people to have a safe, low anxiety feeling about their, how they make money. And then financial literacy trains them on how to make money. How do we mm -hmm. make more money? And what can we do to become more financially and astute? Be, and they can be better, better. Like you were talking about Bobby's course. Like you're like, you're not, I, I just, I think it's so crazy that we, we as a society could assume that someone that's strapped with all of these challenges financially is just going to show up back to your 60,000 thoughts. Like they're not going to be thinking about you if they don't know how they're going to pay their healthcare bill or do this credit. You know what I mean? Like I just it, it, ignoring that personal side of them of the person is just kind of ridiculous. It's ludicrous. Yes. Because <laughs> ludicrous, totally. you, want, you want to capture all those thoughts and remember the worst, the worst problem or the biggest problem about employee engagement is disruptors in the person, individual disruptors, what bothers them. And so I like watching eyes to tell me what's going on inside the head and, and watching behaviors. But our executive chef is one of the finest leaders I've ever met in my life, Chef Alfredo Velazquez. And he started with us and we had the hot dog stand and he's been with us at Tasty Catering since the beginning. Wow. And as he merged into Tasty Catering, I said, what are your goals in life? Because he had mentioned he wanted to become an executive chef. He wanted to be a trained culinary chef. And we facilitated that. And he went through culinary school and got his upper degrees. And uh, I said, what are your goals in life? He says, well, personally, I want to become an executive chef. Personally, I want to become an American citizen. For my family, I want to buy a house and I want to send my kids through college. I said, okay. And I went to my little file on Alfredo Velasquez and I wrote those in, just like I write them in for every employee. What are your goals? What do you want to achieve? So one day recently, I said, you know, we had, this was a couple of years ago. I said, you achieved your goals because your son Uriel is graduating from DePaul and Eric's right behind him. And you got to watch all that, Tom. Got, How cool. Yeah. yeah. I, went to, I went to his daughter Gigi's uh, quinceaneros and now she's graduating from high school and she's got a multiple full ride scholarships because she's graduated the top of her class in high school. So I said, your kids are graduating from college now. You have a home and you have a home. You bought a home in Mount Prospect, a suburb, and your whole family's American citizens. I says, how do you feel now? He says, oh, I'm deeply in debt because of college. I said, well, that means you're an American. <laughs> Deep in debt. <laughs> yeah. Welcome. Success. Welcome. Yeah. And he says, yeah, a few more years and uh, 
I got to pay this all off, but my 401k is very nice. I said, is that great? Does that mean you can go back down to Mexico, back to Marilia and retire? He says, oh, no, no, no. They kidnapped my family because they know I have money. I can't go back home. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, how tragic is that? You know, he works yeah. his whole life. And, but, you know, understanding those goals, what the interior driver is for the people is so critical. Interior driver. That is the, that is cool. And it's like that intrinsic motivation. Like it's noticeable when someone has that. And especially when it's tied to a group that's tied to a bigger goal. And you, you got this word entangled companies that I like a lot. You want to explain some thoughts behind that, that descriptor? That was Molly Meyer's idea. And, and Molly Meyer gave an analogy in the book that an engaged employee is like a college athlete, because she was a college athlete, obviously. But an entangled employee is like an Olympic athlete, where their whole being, their whole existence is wrapped around, uh, around their sport or, or what they do. So for Tasty Catered, it means that their entire being – is based on tasty catering. And how many of us are work for a job, work in an organization, we spend the majority of our life there, we spend more time with the people we work than with our family and friends. Um, so the point is, if if you can create the right atmosphere, and every leader can create the right atmosphere, but mm -hmm. when you do create the right atmosphere, not can, but when you do, entangled employees result. And the entangled employees uh, engagement scores are all in the 90s. Since the average workplace in the United States is 33% engagement. And Isn't that uh, crazy. You know what you I'm curious on the you know what I, you know what I think of the first time I or the, when I hear those stats how I think I don't go to all oh, these underperforming companies. I go think of how many miserable people there are out there. Because yeah. of how much time we spend. And I, I'm not saying that they're actually miserable at the core. I'm just like that they're spending that much time doing something that they don't like. Yes. Like that's just, that's just that just sucks. That leads to alcoholism. It leads to drug addiction. It leads to a marital affairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're searching the pleasure. You're searching the reward for your soul. And then you find out you're more frustrated because searching pleasure ends up in unhappiness. But I, I agree. I we won psychologically healthiest workplace in America both times we entered it with the American Psychological Association. We hope to enter it again next year, but we took a pass. Every four years, we we're going to do it, but we took a pass during COVID. But during our last examination, four psychologists came into Tasty and spoke to every single employee on the payroll because we didn't want to hide the recalcitrance, you know, in the closet. You're not going to talk to the people <laughs> that hate no us. There's no BS here. Like, you're <laughs> going to, you're going to, there's no out. <laughs> they want to look at everybody that's been paid and talk to them. And so when the lead investigator, Alan Graham, was going to the restroom, he walked by my desk. He says, Tom, your executive chef's unbelievable. He's a phenomenal leader. He said, I asked him, how come in this kitchen everybody's happy every day? <laughs> And he said, I've been here four days and everybody's always happy. Nobody's arguing. They're all positive. And uh, he said, well, it's very important to me that when the people go home at night, they're happy. And I look in their eyes and I watch them the last couple hours to see how they're doing. And he said, I sit in my office and I look out in the kitchen. I watch their eyes and their body movements. And if they go home happy, they come home happy. They come back to morning happy. But if they go home at mad at night, they stop for cocaine, marijuana, cerveza, tequila, and then they fight with their families and they come in the morning very mad and we have problems. So it's easier if they go home happy, they come in happy. Alan Graham said, I've never heard it put that way. <laughs> That's Is a great so, idea. It's so simple. 
it's just it's, it's just it takes the it takes being there and present it takes being present you yeah. know and you know on that note I, I one of the other cool things that i've heard about uh assessing like kind of the truth is ask someone's spouse about the business yes <laughs> I, was like, I heard that because that's you're trying to get to the truth and go back to this entangled employees i like the college <laughs> athlete where you're living and breathing the, the it's in your head with most of the thoughts that are running through your head every day so how many times do our call our culture our culture talk about it's business versus professional you got to have balance you got to have boundaries especially if these aren't uh, if they're not owners there's like this narrative that this is a bad thing even though we've spent an hour talking about all the positives so like where do you think that comes from? I think it comes from people that are unhappy at work. I think it comes from people that are disengaged. They say, oh, you can't be like that. That's bad for you. Well, you've never experienced the high of working with people you love, people you're excited to be with, people you love solving issues with. I mean, that that's thrilling, and it gives you emphasis to come back the next day. Yep. Uh, uh, I, and I think a clearly defined culture, clearly defined core values removes the unsuredness of how to behave at work. You know what your expected behavior is. You know it's going to be enforced. So just do it and watch how much fun you can have while you're working. You know, the title of the book, if I could go back to that for one moment, is an mm -hmm. interesting story because we had a young man come up from Texas and uh, he was going to be working with a family that, that works for us. There's multiple members of this family that work for us. And this young man was very young, 17 or 18 years old, and he had very limited English and uh, he heard arguing going on between a uh, college student that was a team captain and his high school students that were loading a truck for a summer event. And this guy raised his voice. Well, you're not supposed to raise your voice to taste because it creates an amygdala hijack, which shuts off your thinking ability and your resort to emotions. And so I heard this yelling because I was paying for a liquor delivery with a check. You have to pay for liquor in Illinois. You can't charge it. So I started walking to the to the sound of the voices, and I saw Hugo walk by in front of me. He goes up to this college team leader, and remember, Hugo's been here two or three weeks and has very limited English. He tells the guy, hey, stupido, which really wasn't nice, but hey, stupido, <laughs> numero dos. And core value number two is treat all with respect. And the college student looked up at the core values that are right there on the loading dock. And he turned to the high school students, and I thought, if he doesn't apologize, he's going to be fired next in front of everybody. Because <laughs> he was called out. And when you're called out, you have to. So he turns to the high school kids. He said, it's all my fault. I'm sorry. I didn't clearly explain which truck to load it in. So let's reverse. Let's do it this way. So I caught up to Hugo as we walked around the, uh, the freezers. And I shook his hand with a Chicago handshake. And in Chicago, you want anything done, have a $20 bill in your hand and shake the valet <laughs> and your car's right in the front, shake the Mater D and you get the best table. Price, I think, has gone up to two $20 bills now. But anyway, I had a $20 bill and I shook his hand and he looked at the $20 bill and he gave it back to me. He says, Tomas, it's my company too. He didn't want That's the 20, awesome. which was about 25% of his pay for the day. Wow. It's a... Uh... I've experienced working like this, Tom. I mean, like in with this context, I don't know if the listeners have ever heard it like this, but like, I think that our team had got to this cohesive kind of culture, like you're talking about. And that was what was so heartbreaking when we sold, because you just dismantle it's it, you can dismantle a PL and break it up and do whatever you want with it. But when you dismantle a culture like that, 
it's like grieving. I don't yes. know how else to put it, you know, because like you see how, how long and how, how much, how long and how much care it takes to, to keep that. You know what I mean? Like it's that, that is all human interactions that are, that it takes, it just takes time and it takes time to nurture like that. It's just devastating when I think of if that's what people like and are solving for that they think that they, that they have to get rid of it or something like that. Yeah, it's a, I, I can't imagine a tasty caterer never should falter and the doors get locked. I can't imagine the the negative impact it'll have on so many people's uh, personal lives and emotions because this well, is well, the safe place. Well, on that note, like, I mean, what was it like when COVID hit and all the events and all the catering you guys are doing? I mean, like, how did the culture handle that? Because like, <laughs> the, reason I'm, the reason I'm asking that, Tom, is, is it even possible for it to falter when you have that many people that care that much we don't have another hour to speak about this but it's a rich story worth telling uh, jack stack's company is the first chapter in our book and i learned a lot from interviewing jack and his company to find out what made it work but one of the takeaways i had was how the people were personally invested in the profitability of src holdings so when the August 18th of 2020 happened and the governor shut down hospitality industry in United, in Illinois, uh, we had to have a meeting to decide what we're going to do. And one of our leaders said in the team meeting, he pointed up to the core values and he said, if we violate any of those, when COVID's over, we won't survive. We won't be the same company. We'll be a different company. If we want to come out of this, the same company, we make all our decisions based on this. And it was not an owner. And it was not the CEO. It was another person on the leadership yeah. team. And I just sat there going, oh, my goodness. You yeah, get I, have a, I, have a th I have a golf ball in my throat just thinking about that. Yeah. And so awesome. we decided to keep the people open. Thank God for my wife. I've told you about her. She's a great financial planner. We had no short-term debt. And we had a lot of lines of credit. And we had cash built up. And uh, so we told our employees that they were going to have jobs. And we're going to pay them. We're going to pay them whether they worked or not. And if they were going to make 30 hours a week. And if you're salaried, you get 90% of your pay, but you still had to do things. You could work from home. We did a lot of things, but we guarantee whether you work or not, you're getting 30 hours a week. And uh, they eventually asked for that to go down to 20 hours a week so we would last longer. And they asked if we would free up the money from TUI Capital so they could borrow more money as they needed. And then we suspended all payments on any debts to TUI Capital. And we lent out about $85,000 to employees during that time. Wow. And uh, I kept repeating the mantra, don't worry about our money. That's our responsibility. It's my brothers and I. We'll worry about Tasty Catering. You focus on how do we make Tasty Catering succeed. And uh, so when I was speaking last year at the university, I told the stories about individuals that made the company win. And one of them is Tony. Tony Tony is a driver. Tony was driving to uh, McCormick Place in Chicago. We were feeding the National Guard. We were the only caterer in Chicago open that could serve more than 15 people. Yeah, and wow. one of my friends said, I have I fired 482 people on March 18th, 481 employees and myself. So when, when the company, when business came back, these fellow caterers had no employees. And the employees found other jobs. And they told them, go to hell. I'm not coming back to work for you. Yeah. You'll fire me again. But Anyway, Tony was driving down to McCormick Place, and it took about an hour and a half to get down there and back. And one day he didn't come back. And then we found him on his GPS, and he was driving up and down the streets of Elk Grove Village. 
in his van. We saw that going up and down. And it's the largest industrial park in the in the country. And it's 100,000 people come to work in it's six square miles every day. And there were no cars in parking lots. There were no cars in the streets. It was a ghost town. And so when Tony came in, we, we he was approached and said, are you okay? Where were you? He said, I have the answer. <laughs> and I said, what's the answer? I didn't say it. People that were there with him said, and he said, I found full parking lots, full parking lots. And so I took a picture of the parking lot and I took a picture of the address of the company name. And I've got about 15 of them here. And our salespeople should go talk to him. Tony was worth over $550,000 in business that we found in our own industrial park. He said, there's no restaurants open. There's no caterers open. These people got to eat and they're all bringing sandwiches to work. Maybe they're going to need something for spirit. You know, they get a breakfast at two o'clock in the morning and they were making, you know, face guards and shields and gloves mm -hmm. and things. And uh, so our sales team jumped in their cars and they drove right over to these places and started talking to them. And oh, that was cool. just one example of one man with his idea on how to save us business and make money. So we had, you know, 60, 70 employees coming up every day with ideas. Another wonderful one was Gerardo. Gerardo's wife works in our culinary department, and she's a salad worker, and he was a driver, and he was our last driver hired. And he came to me, and he said, the guys really need their hours, and 30 hours, and we cut back to 20, isn't going to cut it. But if I leave, they can take my hours because I'm working the night shift. And uh, he said, I'll go back to doing what I did before. And I said, what's that? He said, Uber and taxis around O'Hare Airport. I know how to get the pilots. I know where to go to find them. And I said, well, when you do that, come in here and make your lunch and come in here and, and take lunch and coffee and sodas. And he said, I have one request. And he changed it to two. His first request was that we don't let his wife go. So they have income in the family. Second request that he's the first driver hired back. <laughs> And so usually mm -hmm. when he's in, in the building, when other people are visiting Tasty, I go and show them Gerardo and explain what he did. I mean, that little, that little feeling that he gave to a company was a very entangled employee about how do I make the company right? How do I help my friends? That, that's phenomenal. Um, I know we're getting short on time here, Tom. I, I, I'm just curious because I, like everything you're describing is the world that I want to live in. And I think from every human being I've met, it's also the world that other people want to live in. What the hell do you think is going on with the, like the thought processes in so many companies these days where like adults need to be told what to do and don't like, like to a, to a point where it's like, we're not treating them like adults. This, I'm honing in on a discretionary thinking that you're talking about. Yes. Like, like because of like, you and I both know it works. And then not only does it work financially, but it also feels good and it's better for everyone else. Like, what do you think? got into the minds of like, there's this, there's somehow adults and then there's somehow like workers that don't, that need to be told specifically what to do. I'm just kind of curious in your thoughts behind that. Well, I think that everybody that walks in the door and I, and our business is a leader, they decided how to drive to work, how to come to work, how to buy a car, <laughs> how to make their lunch, how to talk to their significant other. They're all leaders. And why, when they walk into the door, does their brain automatically go dead and they just do what they're told? What a waste of life for both of us. Yeah. So, I, I also think, I think that their problem exists because so many people in academia have never really been a leader. They've never been in charge of a company. They've never had to, you know, they just, well, I, I read it in this book and therefore this is what it is. Well, 
That's why I like speaking to universities, say, no, what they've told you is right, but here's a better way. That's a good way, but this oh. is a better way. But I, I, I just don't think that people have had been exposed to there's a better way to do it. And I don't think people have been exposed to people speaking about it and saying this does work. And through the I small giants, I got to meet people that do it, not only our company, but other companies that do it, and it mm -hmm. validates it. It's not just Tasty. It's all these other businesses. You know, there's a couple of things that you said that I think resonate is that it's the experience. Like it's hard to know what it looks like kind of when you're talking about your rock bottom or with this, you know, magic culture, it's, it's an entangled business. It's once you've experienced it, then you know how to go build it again. And I wonder if there's just such a lack of people experiencing what we're talking about here, which just also makes me sad just in general that people can't have that kind of joy because it is such a beautiful thing when it happens. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's why I like speaking. I like to expose people that there is a better way and there is a better way to do it. And it's really simple. It's treating people the way you want to be treated. And if, if you're a jerk and you like being treated like a jerk, well, then have a jerk company. I, I spoke in an organization last week and a guy wrote me and basically said he's a jerk. He's a jerk leader, <laughs> but his company's filled with jerks and they're, they're only there for money. They don't want to be nice to each other. They just want the money. And I said, well, have fun. Don't change. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a really funny time. I get, the, I, I got done with a, a, one of the, we do like these three hour workshops. You saw the hour long keynote and this one guy, you know, just sitting there like this the whole time with his arms crossed, just like, just can't wait to pounce on me. And he goes, Ryan, what if I don't care? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, I was like, what do you mean you don't care? Like, I, I didn't invent any of this. This isn't Ryan's thing. And he goes, well, I just don't. I'm like, do you have like a pile of money and like a perfect, like, why are you doing this? And I'm like, it's like gravity. You don't have to believe in it. But if you fall off the, if you jump off the building, I know it's going to happen. And it was just a weird, like you said, just, okay. Like, sounds good. Yeah. If he wanted to be validated, just say, well, fine. If that's the way you are, enjoy it. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm really here for the people that don't want to be like that, that would like to right. change. So if right. you're content. You're luckier than everybody else here because they're not content with what they have. Yeah. A couple of final questions. Yes, um, sir. What do you, what do you hope for tasty catering long-term? Like what, what's the, what, what's, what is your, or therefore the, the overall organization's goals and what, what do you see in the future? I'd like it to last a hundred years because hundred years would be a nice mark. Chapter two of our book is integrated project management, Rich Panico's company. And he's very strong in building a company that will last a hundred years. And I've been following what he does and trying to do it here. It's built on strong organizational culture. So I think Tasty Catering has a bright future. They know what their limitations are. They know they want to stay within a certain amount of people. They know they want to stay within a certain market segment, but they want to own it. And uh, rather than build Tasty Cater into gigantic proportions, they start other businesses, split-off businesses, mm -hmm. like a marketing company, like a gift mm -hmm. company, like a commercial bakery company. So they start split-offs, and that way employees can become owners. And they can – we talked yeah. earlier about employees yeah. that want to own. Well, fine. Well, let's go start a company. You can be an owner, but not a Tasty. You know, that's got yeah. an ownership group. So That's super cool. Right now, we, we've also started a trucking company by employees, and we started a uh, staffing agency started by our employees. And you know, who knows where we're going to go? But Tasty Catering will mean exactly what it is and become the crown jewel. So cool, Tom. Um, 
By the way, if I could interject, my son has gone out and done about $100 million in businesses on companies that I'm not involved in. I just invested in them. And uh, when he started Tasty, he said, I don't want to work. I don't want to own Tasty Catering. I'll work for you to learn ownership, but I'm going to start my own businesses. And so so he's an example of a guy who came to work with us, started their own businesses, and we stayed involved with them. That's so awesome. I remember that too in SRC with Jack where like, I don't know how many entrepreneurs they've helped create too. I love the offshoot like that. It's a great, great, the pie is getting bigger all around. Um, Is there anything I did not ask that I should have? The only thing that I think is important if people are concerned about the culture is putting numbers in front of it so you can call people out for violation. I was the Mm -hmm. first person ever violate the core values. I violated, I I yelled at a girl about something she did and she turned around and said to me, is this number two? And I said to her, no, but is what I apologize. I'm wrong. But is what you did number three, five, and seven. And that was the end of it because we use the numbers. You don't have to use the rhetoric. And the positive about that culture is that if Tom corrects you, it's extrinsic, right? And immediately you're going to put your middle finger up or wall me off because I'm correcting you. But if I just say, Ryan, didn't we both agree that we were promised to follow these values? And do you think that was number two? Well, then it becomes intrinsic and altruistic. Yes. I love that uh, a lot. Um, We'll get to your contact information in a sec, but the absolute last question is, I love to hear people's definition of intentional. You heard me ask the group in front of uh, when we were doing the keynote months ago, what's the word intentional mean for you? With planned purpose and planned outcome. Oh, nailed it. That is awesome. Where can people find you, the book, and Tasty? Uh, Tom at tastycatering.com. Regular generic spelling of tasty and catering.com. And that's the best way to get all of me by email. The book is for sale on Amazon uh, and other places, Barnes and Noble. Other places. And we'll have the links in the show notes. Tom, this was a pleasure and an honor, and I can't thank you enough for the time. You're one of the best speakers I ever heard, and I hope to continue Whoa. our relationship in the future. You, What you said in that speech the first time I heard you, I think I've said this privately. I'm going to say it publicly. My wife is a certified financial planner with a master's degree in finance and has been doing financial planning for very famous uh, athletes. And uh, she never explained what she does as clearly as you did <laughs> and the impact she had on the company. She tried many times, but you were perfect in your how financial planning is important congratulations wow, Tom, that, it's, that literally means the world to me so i can't thank you enough now i'm really grateful for the conversation <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much tom I god bless you it. thank you well that's a wrap i hope you enjoyed the conversation with tom i know that i have a strong emotional gravitational pull to work for or with Tom. And I can tell that his entire company probably feels the same way because of how he just described his operations and approach towards leadership and culture over this last hour. And I just absolutely have a desire for everybody to experience what Tom is talking about. And I believe that is possible if people have a healthy business and we have to have a healthy business that's generating more cash flow, that is more sustainable. So everybody can have jobs. There can be more returns for the owners and everybody's aligned and why the business is around. So if there's anything that you need help with, we've got the three offerings I mentioned in the commercial. We've got our do it yourself, the training through the online academy, the in-person boot camp. If you want to learn how valuations, value growth and exits work. The second thing is to do it with you, which is our financial and operational dashboard where we connect your financials and your ops to your target 
valuation so you can understand and see visibility into your cash flow, your valuation, your distributions, and all the most important KPIs of the company. And then there's the third offering where it's the do it for you, where if you want someone sitting in that function seat, in the finance seat, we have our fractional CFO services that will be powered by the dashboard and bring visibility and KPIs that are tied to your ultimate goal. I appreciate everybody for tuning in so much. Thank you for being a supporter and a listener, and I will see you next week.